so much for that, Jeremy and Gary. and Just so good to be exhorted in the truth. You know, as we sang this morning, what a foretaste of deliverance. Of course, that's the resurrection uh, joy we look forward to. But I pray this morning, as you walk into uh, the assembly, you got a little foretaste of deliverance. These are oppressive times, dark times, right? This is a foretaste of deliverance right here. And I pray that this morning, whatever your stead, uh, you will be enlightened, not only by the saints here at Westmont Bible Chapel, and in fact, we know our church, you will be, but by the truths that we're singing about. Because this land is dark, and it's always been dark, as Gary reminded us. But we have the message of light. Think about how pervasive darkness has been for centuries. You know, the Gospels record John the Baptist, do you remember, in jail. John the Baptist in jail. In jail because he had the audacity to call out Herod for having an unlawful desire to, to want his brother's wife. That's unlawful. John the Baptist said, it's not lawful for you to have her. And now, I don't know of anyone that would look at that text and say, you know, John the Baptist, you got what's coming to you. You, you, John the Baptist, you got it. You shouldn't complain, John. And anyone that supports John, you got it coming to you. No one would say that. But somehow, we say that today. Somehow, as Pastor James in Edmonton at Reman Center in Edmonton is in jail, we say, you know, he had it coming to him. He had it coming to him. I know as many of you have reached out and the reply you've received from the authorities over there have looked to clarify some things and debunk some myths, I almost have to mournfully chuckle at, well, he's being treated well. He's being respected. Wow. And we take comfort in that. He's being respected in jail. You hear he brought it on himself. You hear he could make it all go away. This is what many of you have got back. You could, he could make it all go away if what he just stops preaching the word of God. And even more, here's the political line, and we need to say this publicly. He could make it all go away if he'd only what? Just submit to the public health measures. Really. And what we want to say in the line of saints like John the Baptist is, well, what about the authorities obeying the law? You say, well, what are you talking about? There's the public health. They have measures. Listen to the law of our land. This is the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. I know many of you know this. Many of you don't. Section 2. This is in our charter. This is our DNA. Everyone, without exception, has the following fundamental freedoms. Listen. Freedom of conscience and religion, freedom of thought, belief, opinion, and expression, including freedom of the press and other media of communication, freedom of peaceful assembly, this is our charter, and freedom of association. It goes on to say this, our right to gather and act in peaceful groups is also protected, as is our right to belong to an association. That's the Canadian Charter of Rights. I ask you, who's breaking the law? And if that wasn't enough, let me read you the criminal code. And beloved, I say this publicly so that we all know and we all arise 
And we all recognize the injustice here and we call out injustice for what it is. The Canadian Criminal Code says this. You can look it up. Section 176.1. Everyone who by threats or force unlawfully obstructs or prevents or endeavors to, hear this, obstruct or prevent a clergyman or minister from celebrating divine service or performing any other function in connection with his calling. Arrests him on civil process under the pretense of executing a civil process is guilty of an indictable offense and liable to imprisonment. That's the lawful imprisonment. Pastor James is being prevented from doing what he has been called to do. This is in not just the Charter of Rights in the Criminal Code. And I ask you, who's breaking the law? Who's breaking the law? Can we gather like John the Baptist and call out injustice for what it is? Aaron, his bride, said this, and she said it often. Where's the church? Where's the church? I pray this morning, and again, you will pardon the conviction, the truth that needs to be communicated this morning. I pray, church, you didn't just sing, O church, arise, that you will live it today. There is injustice in our land, and it needs to be called out. No, James is not getting what he deserves. Just like the man, the God-man that he is proclaiming, as Gary reminded us, And let us not be apathetic in such times. I pray as we understand the law of the land, we understand these truths more and more. And the real necessity for this, what a foretaste of deliverance. James understands that, believe me. Many of you know Canada birthed under the truth of Psalm 72, verse 8, which says this, May God have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. In fact, that psalm, that verse, is the impetus for the design we have on our flag. It's what drove that design from sea to sea. And that truth actually is engraved, you know, the big peace tower on Parliament Hill. It's in all the pictures, the main focal point of Parliament Hill. That same verse is over the east window of the Peace Tower, and, you know, it doesn't stand alone. Over the west window on Parliament Hill, Proverbs 29, 18, it reads this, Where there is no vision, the people perish. Once you go inside Parliament Hill, there's more, much more, like this in Memorial Chamber. Revelation 2.10, it says this, Faithful unto death. By the way, if you were to look up the government website, the government of Canada, they would have that reference, but they wouldn't have the reference. They'd have faithful unto death with no reference to where that came from. They've taken out the biblical reference. Those verses and dozens more engraved, embossed, embedded in the walls and windows of the center of our nation's government. Did you know that? To some, even as you may hear that, Realize or think those are bygones of a Judeo-Christian age, long gone by, right? You may think that. Yet consider this, in 1994, that's less than 30 years ago, Queen Elizabeth II approved this addition to our Canadian coat of arms. It's a red circular ribbon, if you look at it with this Latin phrase, 
desiderantis melorium patrium, which means they desire a better country. You say, wait a minute, I've heard that before. That's right, it sounds familiar because it's Hebrews eleven sixteen. That's on our coat of arms. Did you know that? The word of God is on our coat of arms. Of course, much of this is unknown to most Canadians because we've abandoned our roots long ago and only remember what is convenient for the day. Is that not true? Only remember what helps today. And listen, biblical founding principles to a secular, progressive present is just not helpful. In fact, it gets in the way, right? It impedes the ship moving forward. Don't give me those ancient, bygone, era truths. We're progressive. Yet, our builders, our leaders, even our figureheads, until recently have known and understood these principles of our nation's birth. And, through the initiative in 1984, have sought to remind us of those truths. You know what's so ironic when you think about Canada? We always say, well, we're not the states. You know what's so ironic about the birth of Canada? We were birthed by who? English loyalists. That's the birth of... Isn't that funny? Loyal to the king because the king was loyal to who? God. I just think it's such an irony today. Held on to texts like Romans 13.1, recognizing, right? The, the monarchy in England, we serve, we are a monarchy under God. As such, we follow earthly authority as they follow God's authority. That's what they said, Romans 13.4. As government does good and upholds God's law, so we follow, and so we still do. That is the nation, it appears, that we were yesterday, but now we have forgotten as such, and Wilson was right, today we have absolutely no idea what we are and what we're trying to do. No idea. Our nation is just one of many parallels to this plague that we see through the land. In fact, it is a fitting parallel as we get into Exodus 13 and unfold this section, which is the birth of a nation, the birth of a nation. We could talk about the birth of other nations, and many have, like the United States, we could talk about the birth of organizations that many of you know well. Like, think about what's happening to the Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts. Every single nation and organization that forgets how their birth fails really to be anything of consequence today. All with an identity crisis. Today we open up to Exodus 13 and begin a portion through at least the next six chapters at least that outlines the birth of a nation, the nation of Israel. Here is where Israel is solidified. This is where it comes together. And over the next few chapters, we will see how this nation was birthed. The authority established, their life and practice defined, their identity certain. Last week, we witnessed the moment of deliverance for God's people. Do you remember that? We remind ourselves of that moment. Just look back for a moment at chapter 12. Do you remember this was the pinnacle of what we had been building to, what God was revealing in this text? Verse 29, chapter 12, at midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. 
Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you said, and be gone, and bless me also. That deliverance, captured in those few verses, of course, the culmination of the signs, the mighty signs and wonders that God brought on Egypt. Unleashed through Moses, remember, before Israel, on Pharaoh, and again, over all the nation of Egypt. That's what we've looked at these past few weeks and months. All that, so as God declared, remember chapter 7, verse 17, all of that, here is the purpose, this is what he said, by this, the signs and wonders, you shall know that I am the Lord. Yes, God has revealed the power of his name, now he turns to his people. And mark that, right now, that's what they are. They're just that, a collection of people. That's what they are, freed people, but a ragtag bunch of just people, liberated slaves, delivered, but that's what they are. And this mixed multitude, as we read last week, officially started their journey. Look at chapter 12, verse 37. Again, we're just kind of priming the pump and reminding ourselves where we are, verse 37. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth. About 600,000 men on foot besides women and children, a mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And today we see how the Lord, after bringing them out of Egypt as this group of peoples here, will now bring them together as a nation onto him. That's where we're going in the weeks ahead. That's where the text is taking us. Let's trace that birth now. And we look at first, a people set apart. Look at verses 1 and 2. A people set apart. Let's read that. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. The Lord says to Moses, Consecrate to me. Your version might say, Sanctify to me. The word there is kadosh, which is the Hebrew word for holy. Holy, that's what lies behind that. And the word construction there is so important and very insightful for us. This is what we don't want to miss. The key preposition, to me, right, you see that, is tightly connected to what? Holy. So it's holy to me. In the original language, you can't see this, but there's like a hyphen that connects holy into me. Like we sang this morning, the hell-bound man. Hell and bound are so tight together, right, that you have to do, you have to connect them with a grammatical mark. It's the same thing here. Consecrated to me. They're just inseparably bound up together. This is for emphasis. And you say, why is that so important? Well, God, in his inspired word, wants to show us something. And what does he want to show us? It's not just make holy or set apart, not just the negative action. Many of us are very familiar with that, right? Just be separate, be set apart. So much emphasis on the negative. No, inseparably connected to that is not just be separate, make holy what? To me, God says. You see that? Make holy to me. This is the positive. We've talked about this so much, but not enough is said about the positive of holiness. 
to be devoted unto God. This is consecration, sanctification. This is, yes, being set apart from all else, but being set apart so that you can be fully devoted unto God. And this is, beloved, how God's nationality starts. Mark it. It always does. This is an economy marker right here. Every time. Set apart, fully devoted to me, God says. Now, that may ring a bell for some of you. Our conference here two years ago was on holiness, and we talked about this. Chapter 3, we talked about this in Exodus. We've looked at holiness so much, defining it properly, and we would say this, holiness is devotion. This is what I really want us to settle into, devotion. And you see, you cannot be fully devoted to God if you're not set apart from all else. Do you see that? You need to be set apart from all else so that you can be fully devoted. We'll return to this doctrine of holiness as the text is going to take us there in chapter 19, so we'll leave it there for now. Right now, though, let's zero in on where exactly the text is taking us. Look at verse 2. It says, made holy to the Lord. Made holy to the Lord. Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Again, who is to be consecrated? Who is to be sanctified? Who is to be made holy? We see here the firstborn. In fact, very explicitly there, it says, look at verse 2, whoever opens the womb. In other words, who comes first? We get that. You'll notice the Lord says whether that is man or beast. And you say, well, why both there? Why man or beast? Well, that inclusion connects us to the command, connects this command to the curse that's still fresh on minds. Look back at chapter 11. This is key. We want to put this together. Do you remember in chapter 11, verse 4, this is the, the final warning to Pharaoh. And listen to what Moses says. God says through Moses, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits in his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and then listen to this, and all the firstborn of the cattle. Of the cattle. Also again, turn to chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 29, remember, we just read this. So who is struck down? Look at verse 29, the end of it, and all the firstborn of the livestock, the livestock. So here it is, the ones spared, the ones covered by the lamb, the blood of the lamb. The ones spared are the ones covered by the blood of the lamb. Those same spared ones are now to be the set-apart ones. Do you see that? The spared ones are the set-apart ones. And not just spared and set-apart. We've talked about this so much, right? Not just spared, okay, there you go, do what you will. I've sprung you free, now go do and live according to your own edicts. And who No, free to what? True freedom where? Onto God. That's true freedom. That's true liberty, to be free to live God's way. And it's exactly what we're seeing in the birth of this nation. They're set apart now onto God. This is, beloved, the opening and fundamental step of the birth of a nation. And the birth of a nation specifically here, Israel. This nation of God's people birthed with this core command, be holy unto me. Now, if you're following closely, you might say, what of the second or the third born? What about them? Are they not consecrated, Right? What of the Israelites that didn't open the womb first? What of the late born, right? 
Maybe some of you, not born first, feeling that right now. Wait a minute, what about the second, third, fourth born? That's a good question, a good question. And to help us understand that, we need to do a little excursus for a moment and just back up for a second. So turn to Genesis 25. This is a very important question when we understand consecration unto God. Genesis 25. This, of course, is the account of the birth of Jacob and Esau. And what's interesting, most often we say it that way, Jacob and Esau. We're going to see how maybe that may not be entirely accurate for those very particular about birth order. Let's pick it up in verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. So note that she's barren. Isaac's praying for child. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggle together within her. So there's two children in her. Note that. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, listen to what he says, two nations hmm, are in your room. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Now, at this point, if you just had a passing understanding of the nation of Israel, you'd say, of course, and Jacob comes out first, right? He's a firstborn. What does it say? When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb, okay? The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Esau's the firstborn. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Now listen, all we need to grab hold of here, pun intended, is Jacob is not the firstborn. Do you see that? Physically the firstborn. This is so important. Yet, Jacob is a patriarch. Do you see that? He's the one in line. Yet he is not physically the firstborn. Look at verse 23, before an infamous birthright fire sale this all comes before it before the famous wrestling match of Jacob verse 23 the blessing cannot be clearer God has rendered who is the one to get the blessing before all of those earthly developments God declares it is Jacob who will get the firstborn blessing by the way now hang on to this this is a reality that Paul references turn to Romans 9 we can't miss this Paul picks up on this same thing Romans 9, this is in a section of Romans specifically dealing with the nation of Israel. What's happened to them, what will happen to them. We don't have time for all of that today. But what we want to zoom in on now is Romans 9, 11. Listen to this. We pick up this commentary on Jacob and Esau. Though they were not yet born, note that, they weren't even born and yet had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she, Rebecca, was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now just stay there in Romans for a moment and look again at that. The older will serve the younger. The younger, the late-born, will serve the firstborn. Do you see that? You say, well, this doesn't seem to make sense. Why? Look at end of verse 11. Why? Because of him who calls. 
There it is, because of him who calls. There's something greater going on than physical birth order. And this helps our understanding here. We learn when we consider all of Scripture that firstborn in relation to being identified as God's people in an ultimate sense, in an ultimate sense, is a matter of calling, of God's sovereign call and determination. Do you see that? It's God's call who the firstborn is. It's God's call, not physical birth order. And this is clear. Listen, let me just give you a few. Judah, the line is through Judah, is it not? Was he the firstborn? No, he was the fourthborn. Judah was not the firstborn of Jacob and Leah's womb. And what's so interesting in that account, Leah produces five children right off the bat. And you'd think, okay, for sure, Judah's going to come first. Judah's the last one of those first four. Incredible. And he is the line. What about David? What about that account in 1 Samuel 16? You bring out all the tall, handsome brothers. And Samuel's like, that guy, nope, that guy, nope, that guy for sure. Nope, nope, nope. Who do you have left? We got to run watching the sheep back there. And that's the guy. Not only the late born, but the last. Yet what do we know about David? It's all about him with a covenant tied to his kingship. In fact, listen to the title. I want us to see this. Just listen to the title here given to David, who you know is not chronologically the firstborn. Psalm 89 This is Ethan's psalm, the Ezraite. This is his psalm, speaking of David, the king. Verse 20, I have found David my servant. With my holy oil, I have anointed him. And then listen to what he says in verse 27. I will make him, David, the what? The firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. You see that? This has nothing to do with birth order. Nothing at all. By the way, within this same home, David's home... Guess who else wasn't physically firstborn? Gary referenced him as well this morning too. Solomon. Solomon was nowhere near the firstborn, yet he was the chosen. And on it goes in the Old Testament, the title of firstborn, here it is, so tied to God's chosen people. Yet, don't miss this, Westmount, it's not a matter of who came out of the womb first, but of spiritually, sovereignly, by God Almighty being set apart. That's the key. Set apart by God in his sovereign grace, which, by the way, didn't stop with Israel. Different administration now. Consider the new covenant people of God. We go no further than Romans again. Romans again. Just here, and you may, some of you may still be there. Listen to Romans 8. You know this passage. Listen for the key word in this passage. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. This passage here, so important, tells us that not only is calling tied directly to the firstborn, but that the firstborn, the true firstborn, is tied directly to who and is who? Christ. That's right. Christ. Verse 29. The firstborn Son of God, our calling and our place as the new covenant people of God, flow directly from Him, the firstborn Son, who is not just the firstborn of God, now here it is, 
Not just the firstborn of God, but also listen to Colossians 1.18, the firstborn from the dead. Now here is where you're really grabbing it. The firstborn from the dead. The foretaste of deliverance is what? He was the first one to what? Conquer the grave. Because he lived a perfect, righteous life. And it appeased God's wrath and he raised him from the grave and he became the firstborn so that everyone that repents of their sin and places their faith and trust in his righteousness, they too will be the firstborn. Will follow the firstborn. So much there we could say. If we are in Christ with faith in his blood, then we too are the firstborn. And this is precisely what you see over and over again in the New Testament. Consider just one Hebrews 12, 22. Hebrews 12, 22. But you, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and listen to this, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. We are the assembly of the firstborn, listen, not because we broke the womb first, but because in God's sovereign grace we were called, we were chosen by him. Now, Westman, that same calling of the firstborn, and we give all of that little excursion to say, this is what in our Exodus account, turn back there now, is pointing to. Do you see that? This is the point of the picture in Exodus. Dave read the passage in 1 Corinthians 10, right? Telling us so often the Old Testament is pointing to something that demands our attention. And here we see a true understanding, a fulfillment of what firstborn really is. We see here in Exodus a picture of the firstborn. This moment in Israel's birth where the firstborn are set apart points ahead to the true firstborn to be set apart. Do you see that? This is pointing ahead to the true firstborn to be set apart. Let us close this first point with one passage that pulls it all together. Turn to 1 Peter. Gary read from there as well, but we're going to go to chapter 1. This is a letter. This is a letter, and I'm just going to read as you're turning to 1 Peter 1. I'm going to read the address. This is a letter to God's chosen. Listen to chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, look at the word here, in the sanctification, same thing, in the set-apartness, in the holiness of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and how for sprinkling with his blood... And then listen to this. We pick it up in verse 13. Now let's put it all together. What we've learned in Exodus, what we know now about New Covenant Christians. Therefore, preparing your minds, you set apart ones for action. Being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy. Do you see that? As he who called you is holy, that's his nature, Trinitarian devotion, right, to himself, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed. Consider where we were last week. Look at this picture. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, 
not with perishable things such as silver or gold. It's key, but with what? The precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. I pray all kinds of dots are starting to connect there. This is the picture, is it not, in Exodus? We were bought with the lamb's blood, covered, purchased, ransomed. That's exactly what Peter is referring to here. Same thing. Listen, no matter the dispensation, the foundation of nationality is tied to consecration. For God's people of every era, the mark of citizenship is holiness. Every time. The mark of being a kingdom citizen, a blood-bought God-fearer, an ambassador of Jesus Christ, the mark of such a one always is consecration. It's holiness. It's not an ambassador just with a label. It's an ambassador, not just in words, but in life practice. It says, I am fully devoted to God. I'm fully devoted to him. And my life will demonstrate that truth. That is, when you think of nationhood, that is a people set apart. Next, in the birth of a nation, we see a memorial established. Let's look now at a memorial established. We continue in verse 3, and we're going to consider this next section as a whole. Verse 3, Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you. And no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall, therefore, keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are male shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go... The Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrificed to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us up out of Egypt. First section there, you probably have caught it as we reviewed that, it will seem like a recap of what we studied last week. It's familiar, isn't it? Look at it, the Feast of Unleavened Bread in that first section. 
Do you remember chapter 12? Let me just read you chapter 12 as it seems like it's restating exactly what we learned last week. Chapter 12, verse 14 says, This day, this is what God says, this day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. And it would seem, if you look at verses 3 to 10, it's just expanding on that, really, by and large, repeating it. And that's important. Here in chapter 13, we see this directive to remember restated. Really, nothing is new in this section. Nothing is new. In fact, all of it we could say from verses 3 to 16 is by way of a recap of things that we have just learned. Not only in the beginning of Exodus, but we've just learned these things. Look at it. The calendar reset, verse 4. The month of Abib, now the first of months. We learned that. We also see specific instructions, seven days of bread without leaven, verse 7. We've also seen the instructions to what? Pass this memorial on to the next generation, verse 8. And if anything, in this restatement, we actually see an emphasis. Look at verse 10. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. You can just imagine, right, especially on restatement, we see this with little ones often, don't we? Even the older little ones that you, you tell them by the second time, it's like, okay, okay, I've got it. I've got it. A young and restless Israelite, you can just picture backpack straps. Like, okay, I, I, I so get that. Unleavened bread, I'm on it. Passover, you got it. Yes, Yahweh, let's do this thing. You can just almost picture an Israelite fired up and say, why do you have to keep repeating it? Well, centuries later, not only would the Passover be a distant memory, but the Old Testament tells us the entire book of the law became ancient history. Buried and gone. You know it, the reign of Josiah. Hilkiah just dusting up the temple, putting things back in order. Said, What's this? And he finds what? Lo and behold, the book of the law, and he brings it to Josiah. Josiah says, almost in a moment of, if this is true, it is true, this is who we are, and he tears his garments. We've buried this thing. We haven't been doing this. The cynic would say, well, wait a minute. I thought they were really fired up and said, no, 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 we're good to go. We, we got that. Oh, beloved, God's people always market, always need remembering. Whether back then or today, Bibles get read for a time, for a time. Events remembered for a time. But then soon they are forgotten. We know how this goes down, do we not? We, ha we have a whole, almost an industry around notifications because we forget. Is that not true? How many of us rely, whether it's the string on the finger or the ding of the phone, we, we forget. We forget. I mean, listen, even anniversaries, some of us, not all of us, forget those things, the important things, even the most precious things, we forget. It's in our DNA. Here it is. It's in our DNA to forget. Through the curse, we forget. And church, listen, here it is. Here's your application. We're no different to Israel here. We're no different. We need calls constantly from our Creator to remember. Like Israel, we church need memorials established. We need this. That is why we mark the new Passover. That's why Gary led us through remembering the Lord's table. And that's why here at Westmont Bible Chapel, we do that every single week after the pattern of the early church. We gather, we remember the sacrifice, we remember every single week the blood of the Lamb. And by the way, 
That is another one of an endless array of reasons why gathering is essential. Because I want to ask you something. Truly, and just take this with you, how often would you reflect on and remember the death of your Savior if we didn't have even one mechanism like the Lord's table? How often would you truly in your week when Monday assaults you, Tuesday brings you down, Wednesday you're looking for an out, how often through all of that would you pause and reflect on, I need, I need memorial. I need remembrance calls. And I pray at Westmount, you say, I need to gather for the Lord's table. I need to do this. And I pray you have new eyes as you look at Exodus and say, aha, aha, Exodus 13 Verse 3 and on, I get it. This is not just repetition. This is a caring God that says, I know my creations. I know my chosen people. And beloved, you need to remember because you will forget. So God reminds about the memorial feast. Remember it, mark it, establish it. And then in verses 11 to 16, he reminds again of something even more familiar. Look at verse 11. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites as he swore to you and your fathers... And she'll give it to you. You shall set apart. Look at that again. To the Lord all that opens first the womb. Now the deja vu is not just the chapter before, but it's a matter of verses before. You say, wow, he's repeating that. Yes, again, God reminds Israel to consecrate the firstborn. And again, the reminders to pass it on, the generational remembering. Look at verse 14. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. I want you to note there as we uh, look at that text, right? Th this is the generational remembering. Last week, we commented on the church's failure at large to pass it on, and we're not going to go there again, but what's new and interesting here is verse 16. Look at it. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. In time, from verses like that, and there's a couple in Deuteronomy, the Jews concluded that this meant, and here it is, the literal actual wearing of the words on their body. They strapped them to their forehead and to their arm and uh, they were called phylacteries and they were made of uh, consecrated skin, the, the pure animals. They took those skin and they made these little pouches. Again, noted all the ceremony, the ceremonially clean animals. And I mean, in one sense, that all sounds good. I mean, what more of a visual reminder do you need than it on your forehead and on your arm? Inside these little pouches were written on thin strips, little bits of the law. Now, without commenting on whether God intended this to be taken so literally, I'll just reserve that and let Jesus weigh in on it centuries later in Matthew 23. In a whole chapter on woes to the Jewish Pharisees, who were, by the way, experts on the law, Christ said this in verse 5, Matthew 23, They, the Pharisees, do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. We see it here again. Centuries later, this memorial that established the nation, this memorial intended to mark the feast, not mark the body, had become a show and a display. The nation, years later, long forgetting why they're doing this by way of Jesus' indictment. 
Jesus' excoriation of the Jewish leader centuries later reminds us of this truth, that it is possible, it is possible to do things dutifully, but yet completely forget and lose the original meaning. Right? Have you ever had those moments? Like, why am I doing this? And it's just automatic. It happens to all of us. How much more, how much more with these things of the Lord? This is the plague of Christians, of churches, of denominations that cling much more to tradition than the word that birthed the tradition. Now, there's nothing wrong with tradition. This Wednesday, we're going to talk about that. It's a good thing. And we're going to talk about that much. But here, we're talking about remembering without thinking. Here, we're talking about memorial without memory. This is identification as a nation, as a people that we have lost sense of today. Look back at verse 14. Now note the pronouns. When in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought, look at it, us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. Then look at verse 15. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go. Don't miss that. That us, as the father's explaining to his son, is the right sense of tradition. It looks to connectivity, not ceremony. It says this memorial is established in practice, look at it, by us, the people of God. This memorial established, like others by God, looks at the corporate, and here it is, not the individual. You see that? That us says it's about the corporate, it's not about the individual. And is it any surprise, beloved? This just should jump off the page. Is it any surprise when you lose the us, you lose the what? You lose the memory. When you, when you lose the us, you lose it all. Is it any surprise when you fail to prioritize the us, then you lose the establishment? Is it any surprise? That is why God commands his people to mark memorials, to remember, and to establish those memorials, to mark them regularly, to never forget. And here you see God establish that built-in strength, Israel's national birth. One more, we've examined a people set apart, a memorial established. Let's land with this, the God who leads Final verses, the God who leads. Let's consider verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you. And you should carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, did not depart from before the people. The next leg of Israel's journey out of Egypt is recorded here. That's what this is. Remember, they left Ramses in the heart of Egypt and traveled to Succoth. And we just see quickly, I show you this because it's going to be very important as we look at their journey very quickly. I want you to see those cities up there as we look at the, the map. And this is very, very important because Ramses is the number one on the top left. Succoth is number two. You know where the promised land is, right? Just go due east. But that's not the route that they take. Now, to our human eyes and understanding, and this is why I give you the visual this morning, you would say, what's the straightest, dis uh, straightest line, if you will, between two points? Is a straight line. I'll get that out in some way. The shortest distance between two points is a straight line. But they don't do that, do they? Look at it. 
And that is, by all, you know, people argue about the exact route, they go south. That's almost like in the old days, it seems like a family circus route there, right? What, what is going on? There was a road up there, by the way, the Via Maris, the way of the sea, the Philistines' way. And that road went through Philistine territory. God knew that road, but here it is more so he knew his people. Look at verse 17. Lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Now we're almost done here. Just bear with me for a moment. This is key as we land this text. You might say, really, what are the Philistines compared to Egypt? Aren't you thinking that now? Really? I mean, Egypt had a kingdom. Pharaoh was powerful. What? Some guys on the sea, some mariners that may cause some trouble. What's the big deal? How could they be scared of the Philistines in light of the Egyptians? And more so, how God indicted the Egyptians. What's so scary about those Philistines? Those are good questions. Even more, you might ask, why would God lead them, look at it, so far out of the way? He said, okay, listen, a little detour, something to go all the way down there to Sinai, the tip of the peninsula. Why? We fast forward into the life of the nation of Israel for this answer. And let me just read it to you. The spies are sent into the land. Same generation. Same generation. The spies are sent to the people of the land. God has promised he's delivered the whole way. And when they get the report from the spies, this is what they say. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night, and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Oh, would we have died in the land of Egypt, or would that we have died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us? Listen to this. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, listen to this. Let us choose a leader to go back to Egypt. I resist all kinds of temptations because I know your stomachs are growling. You, you could just launch off that text. Does it not resonate with every single one of us today? And, and let me press this point home. Give me bondage. Give me regression. Give me old man. Because you know, this temporal thing is just too much. Give me old man. I want to revert to bondage. God, please do that for me. Our God knows the human heart, and he leads, and he leads. God knows. And this is not just a lesson in God's omniscience. They weren't ready. They weren't ready. God, Deuteronomy 8.2 makes clear what he had to do with that root is to expose what was in their heart. How many of you share the testimony of your Christian life where you realize so much of the journey is what God has revealed in your own heart. Do you know what I'm talking about? And you need to know that before you can go to the next pillar. You can't go to Succoth. You can't go to Etham, let alone the promised land, until you know what's in your heart. And it's so crucial, beloved. That's the nation then, and of course, we're no different. We still fear God's enemies today, even when God demonstrates in his power and might that he's sovereign over it all. We still, in the sovereignty of God, when we see his power, we say, take us back to Egypt. I'm afraid. And we're going to have many more vivid pictures of this living truth later in Exodus. For now, we just rest in this truth explained in these verses. Our God knows, and beloved, please grab the peace as you leave today. Our God not only knows, but our God leads. If you're in him today, he's leading you. Are you comforted by that? He's leading you and protecting you like he is with this grumbling ragtag bunch that he's going to pull into a nation. You too. 
And listen, Israel's forefathers knew this. You look at Joseph's bones there. Joseph knew this is the God who leads. He didn't know all the details of the grumbling. But in Genesis 50, 25, he made them swear to bring his bones back because he knew God delivers on his promises. They didn't know all the details. They just believed in the God who leads. Like Moses, notice who's the one who took the bones. In verse 20, we get the geographical detail, just the next pillar, which is Etham on the journey. And then the description closes with this. Verse 21, how does he lead? The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. You're, you're asking as you read that text, well, what did that look like? I mean, a, a pillar, cloud, fire was like, we don't know. We just don't know. All we have is what the text says. And listen, it's miraculous. Psalm 105:39 seems to suggest a huge covering ground up. This would be a theophany, a manifestation of God. We see this in the Old Testament. I think of Genesis 18, Exodus 3. But listen, don't let your attempts to try and envision this, the pillar of cloud and fire, override the main truth that is what? God is leading them. It's God who leads. This is the birth of a nation. God leads. And no doubt, he's still leading us today in this administration. He is the shepherd leading us. And I pray you're following his voice today. John 10. This is our foundation and shepherd. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens the sheep, hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them. He goes before them. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And listen to this, Westmount. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. No church, we do not know the voice of strangers. We do not know. Someone asked me this week, why did you continue to gather for the past two months? And my response was simple. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. That's it. I want to talk about potency of my heart. I don't want to talk about anything. He's Lord. And you tell me something. When you saw Sandy come through that door today, what did you think? You know, we can skip this. No, you didn't. Jesus is Lord. Our forefathers forgot. Churches are forgetting. But let us never forget Jesus is Lord. We're going to do a rare thing and introduce a new hymn as a closing song. And you know, here's the thing. It's an old hymn, but it's a lost and forgotten good one. It's so good. I'm just going to read you two stanzas of this so that we fully understand what we're saying. Sometimes we remember truths that we sing. Is that not true? We are going to sing this. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by spirit and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her and for her life he died. The third verse says this. Listen carefully and walk out with this today. Mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, she waits in consummation of peace forevermore. 
till with the vision glorious her longing eyes are blessed, and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. Father, may we indeed walk out with that battle cry, God. Our one foundation is your Son, your firstborn, Jesus Christ. All of us in him, in Christ, Lord, have that truth and resolve today. Oh God, embolden us, equip us, make us ready, Father, for all that you would have us be and do, for the fame and glory of your name alone. Amen.